looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. This week, joined by my co-host, DJ Smith. And the guest that we have this week is actually our securities attorney. So this is Kim Lisa Taylor. She has a book out that talks about uh, multifamily syndications, and she has a great resource that we've been able to utilize thus this far in our business. And we really look forward to being able to sit down with her in this week's episode, talking to her about you know what makes a security, what is a syndication, how is it structured, all that fun stuff. I also wanted to mention, if you guys are looking to get involved in our multifamily meetup group that we have, we meet monthly. It's virtual and in person. So if you're local to the central New York area and want to attend in person, or if you'd like to attend virtually via Zoom over the meeting live, let me know. Uh, We meet on the last Tuesday of each month. So we have our next meetup coming up here on September 28th. We meet at 7 p.m. Eastern. If you're looking to attend or get involved, you can reach me directly at Dante at VictoryCapGroup.com. I'd love to send you an invite. We've got a Facebook group, a Facebook page. We've got, we're on meetup.com. There's plenty of places to check us out. So um, if you have questions on that, reach out to me directly. Other than that, let's welcome in Kim Lisa Taylor and get to the show. Alrighty, everyone, welcome back to the show. I've got my co-host here, DJ Smith, with me, and we have a very special guest, our securities attorney, Kim Lisa Taylor. Kim, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you guys? Doing good, doing good. We're glad to have you here. Glad you carved out the time and you're not charging us for this hour. Unlike, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I joke. Oh boy, uh, we're going to start off with a bad attorney bad joke. Attorney joke. Yes, well, you know, right. actually our firm hates to charge by the hour. So that makes us a little unique. Uh, we, we prefer to uh, give our clients, you know, fair lump sum fees and just get the job done. Yeah. It, you know, as long as we're on that topic uh, and now that we're also a client, uh, certainly one of the things that's been tremendously helpful to us is, you know, those Friday calls that you do. So you, you certainly, uh, unlike uh, anyone else we've dealt with, uh, give a lot back, not just in terms of, you know, your time, but also uh, the content that you put out there and your website's phenomenal. So we'll give you a chance to plug that. Uh, certainly at the end, but for those listening, uh, that's your, uh, how do I say your hook? Uh, So you stay tuned to the end. Uh, Make sure you get Kim's uh, contact information because she really does have some tremendous content out there. She does. We really enjoy those. And also Kim is the author of her book, How to Legally Raise Private Money. And it talks about um, SEC uh, requirements and what you guys do through the whole process. And you do a really good job of that, Kim. And we like that book for others that are looking to syndicate or understand more about uh, securities in this space. We definitely suggest going to check that book out over on Amazon. We've got it right here. We keep it handy, especially this week while we were reviewing our, our documents for uh, an offering. So, um, but yeah, let's get into the, the show here, Kim. Please tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you got into this business. So I'm a corporate securities attorney. I'm the founder of Syndication Attorneys PLLC. It's a Florida law firm. I'm actually licensed in both Florida and California as an attorney. I'm also licensed in California as a professional geologist. Uh, So 
uh, that's something that uh, DJ and I share. He has an environmental background. I, I came out of the environmental world. I like to say that that's what keeps me grounded. A little drum so, background but, there. Perhaps it does make me, uh, you know, a, a little bit more in tune with uh, with the business world than perhaps than maybe some attorneys that have never had some outside experience. Um, I actually went to law school uh, about 13 years or 11 years into my um, environmental consulting career and um, spent four years going to law school at night while I worked full time. I uh, went to the University of Denver, um, graduated, went, and I went late, late in life. I kind of, I had a career. I, you know, it was a good career. I sh- certainly could have done that for the rest of my life, but I looked into the future and I said, I don't want to be standing behind drill rigs with steel toe boots and hard hats drilling, uh, you know, taking soil and groundwater samples um, for the rest of my life. Um, decided I would uh, take a different tact. Actually, after I went to law school, I did practice environmental law for a while. Could have picked that as my practice area. I was actually told by an attorney, hey, you could become a, a player in this field. Uh, I was doing that in San Diego at the time. But uh, again, looked into my future and said, these, uh, these cases go on for like 15 years. And, and I have a very short attention span. Uh, <laughs> So I said, no, I don't want to be working on the same case for 15 years. I'd rather do something where I can help people and, you know, kind of give them some some short-term assistance and then, uh, you know, kind of move on to the next thing. Um, So I met someone who was doing um, securities law and started to work with him for a while. Uh, We had a very successful law practice, a securities law practice in Southern California. And then in uh, 2000 and 11, I decided to move to Florida. And in 2016, I, uh, I decided to branch off and start my own practice. Awesome. So that's where I am right now. Um, you know, I do what I do because uh, I, I too am interested in investing in real estate. My husband and I uh, were, you know, we went through a, a multifamily training course. Uh, we went through the one with uh, David Lindahl, our mentor. And uh, that was where I met my ex-law partner. Um, you know, we, we, went, we were in their coaching program. We syndicated a property with some friends. Um, we bought a 27-unit apartment complex in Columbus, Ohio that we owned for nine years. And uh, we sold it a couple of years ago. And, you know, so we've, we've done it. Um, we have uh, a vacation rental now uh, in addition to our, you know, to our own homes. Um, and we're looking to do some more investing. So. We get what our clients are doing. And then one other thing that I did that I think was maybe a little different than what other people is early in my career as a securities attorney, I I read everything I could possibly read about syndication from other people. Um, I went to as many events on it as I could. Um, But I also went to a lot of different real estate training events. So I joined my local real estate investment associations. I went to training on uh, general commercial property, um, went, you know, Scott Shield. I went to Susan Lassiter's uh, multifamily and just general commercial training, uh, went to uh, self-storage training, um, you know, so I, I learned about all these different asset classes that my clients were buying. Uh, I even went to mobile home park training um, so that I could uh, understand better what they were being taught and help them just kind of take that to the next level by you know, bringing in the investor funds so they could buy bigger and more deals. Yeah, I can only imagine that really helped you out for where you're at right now, because obviously people can syndicate 
all those things. So understanding some of the specific nuances to each one, maybe not even nuances, there's there's certainly, you're gonna evaluate a mobile home park differently than you're gonna do multifamily, commercial, et cetera. Uh, so I'm sure that helps shape your ability to provide excellent service to your clients. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the reasons I did it is because, you know, I was interested in investing in those things myself, but I also wanted to learn what my clients are doing. And, uh, and I think that has made me a better counselor to my clients because I'm not telling them to do things that are contrary to what they've learned in those training programs. Yeah, that's great. And being, uh, you know, syndication is definitely the hot word in the last few years here. There's been a lot of people that are trying to syndicate, starting to syndicate. And that's why I think this episode is good having you come on and, and talk a little bit more on the legal side of things and how that all works. Cause you know, the average Joe is not familiar with what goes on in these offerings. So you're a securities attorney. What makes a security? Let's start with that. I think that's a good uh, base foundation there. Uh, that's an absolutely uh, basic premise uh, is you have to understand when you're selling securities. And uh, so there, it comes down to two things in the real estate world. Uh, if you look at, so securities laws are uh, arose out of the Securities Act of 1933. And in the, that Securities Act, there's a definition that says which things are securities. And it's about a half page long and it contains all these different words and phrases. And um, the two that are primarily um, involved in the real estate world are notes, which is actually the very first thing on the list. And then later on and down in that list is something called an investment contract. And uh, even though that investment contract appeared in the definition of securities, it really wasn't a defined term. Nobody really understood what it meant until um, there was some case law. And this was way back in the 1940s that there was some case law that uh, determined what specifically is an investment contract. And it actually arose out of a uh, Florida orange grove where the orange grove operators were selling off some parcels of land that had some orange trees on them with the idea that they were going to continue to harvest the oranges and share those profits with those investors. And eventually they didn't want to do it anymore. So they started, you know, just saying, well, we're not going to do it. Here's your parcel of land. And the, and the investors said, wait a minute, we didn't buy land. We didn't buy trees. We bought this investment contract that said you were going to continue to harvest or oranges and then share the profits with us. So out of that, that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And out of that, the U.S. Supreme Court actually defined what is an investment contract. And what they said was it's an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits based solely on the efforts of the promoter. So you've got these four elements. The uh, case, if anybody wants to look it up, is uh, SEC versus WC Howey, WJ Howey. Anyway, it's called the Howey test and uh, Howey four-prong test. So you have to have all four of those elements, the investment of money, common enterprise, expectation of profits, and it's based solely on the efforts of the promoter. So you can have an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits and not be a security because it's not based solely on the efforts of the promoter. And so if, if all of the members of that, that group, uh, that group investment were actively involved in generating their own project or their own profits, we call that a joint venture. Right. Okay, so joint venture, first three elements, 
security if you have that fourth element based solely on the efforts of the promoter. So when you're the one who found the deal, has it under contract, you're out raising money from investors, they're going to passively invest with you. You're going to create a group of three to five people that are going to be actively running that deal on behalf of those investors. Then, uh, you know, then you're the, you're the promoters of that deal. Therefore, you're selling securities. Right. And I think uh, the word passive there is a good way to kind of uh, differentiate the two different being a, a joint venture, a JV and selling a security. So, you know, as a security, like you said, you're raising capital, you're putting the deal together and these investors that put in their money, they are not looking to do any work. It is purely passive and then get a return versus on a joint venture, uh, a JV, both parties are typically have at least one task, possibly two or more, and they're actually active in the investment. I think that's pretty big because sometimes when I talk to people about um, a syndication, they're like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. Duh, duh, duh. Why don't you just do a JV? Well, are you doing any work or is are you someone that bringing in capital to the deal? Are they doing anything? No. Then it's no longer a JV. It's a security. So I think that's pretty You're big. You're absolutely right. And I see that mistake. That mistake is made a lot. Uh, I very frequently see passive investors and, uh, you know, it's not what you say, it's what you do. That's going to determine whether or not you complied with securities laws. So, Understood. Okay. So let, let's transition that into a syndication then. How did syndication wrap up into a security? And, you know, we hear a lot, uh, Reg D, uh, exemption 506, such and such. Let's talk about that. I think that's a good segue. Okay, yeah, it's a great segue. I think so. So back to the Securities Act of nineteen thirty-three. It has been amended a few times, but it still is the law. Um, what the Securities Act says is that if you're offering or selling securities to the public, then you either have to register the offering, mm -hmm. and that means going through a pre-approval process with the regulators and taking your pump company public, right. um, or you have to qualify for an exemption from registration. Okay, so the, the registration process is long and expensive. You don't have time to do that if you're buying commercial property. It, it will, you know, and, it's, and it will just, you know, unless you're raising millions and millions and millions of dollars, it's not worth it for you to do that. So everybody that we deal with uh, chooses to follow the securities exemptions. And each exemption has a very specific set of rules. So you mentioned the Regulation D, Rule 506. The, that rule has been in, in effect since the mid 19 1980s and how that originally how that originated is uh, that people were doing these country club deals right so it's like you know some guy would say hey I'm going to buy this apartment complex you three guys want to go in on it with me and uh, so so they created this exemption that said well okay if you're only offering it to family and friends and very close acquaintances then you don't have to go through this big old register registration process it's okay you can get your your family and friends to, and acquaintances to passively invest with you. Um, so they, they created Reg D Rule 506. Um, back in 2012, the Jobs Act came into effect and uh, it actually further subdivided Rule 506 into two parts, which we now have today. So Reg D Rule 506B is that original country club rule. So it's your family and friends exemption. Um, and then there's Reg D Rule 506C, which now allows you to advertise, but you can only allow, uh, allow verified accredited investors to invest with you. 
So verified accredited investors in the Reg D Rule 506C, but you can freely advertise. Um, rule 506B is uh, you can raise uh, as much money as you want with an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited but sophisticated investors. Uh, but those investors can't find you through any means of general advertising or solicitation. So it means you have to be able to, to, to prove that you demonstrate that you had a pre-existing substantive relationship with every investor prior to offering them that investment opportunity. And that pre-existing substantive relationship means that you've had a conversation with them about their finances and you understand whether they're accredited or not accredited, but sophisticated and um, you know whether or not the thing that you're offering meets their investment goals. So you actually have to have a live conversation about this. This is not something that you can get all electronically through an exchange of forms or you know, people filling out things on your website. You really actually need to uh, have that conversation with someone about their suitability to be in your deals. And then if you want to do a 506B offering, once you've had those conversations and developed those substantive relationships, now you can offer specific investment opportunities to that group and uh, offer them to invest with you in that, in that opportunity. Yeah, and I want to review on that real quick. So 506B for Bravo um, or 506C for Charlie. Uh, typically, it's one or the other when you're doing a syndication. And basically, what you just said is really good, those, uh, the, the rules or the guidelines. So 506B, you can't advertise or solicit publicly. You have to have a pre-existing relationship. And you know, key, like you said, that's key. The lead can't come in from your website and then you send them the offering and say, hey, send us over the money. You have to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation, really understand their uh, investing goals and what pre-experience do they have in any investing? Do they understand what they're getting into? Um, and then you said unlimited capital raise. Um, I don't believe you said that, but that is in your book that you can raise any amount of capital. Um, mm -hmm. You can have up to 35 non-accredited investors. We'll get into that accredited uh, status in a moment. Um, all must be sophisticated investors and then an unlimited amount of accredited investors. So that's going to be your 506B uh, rule. And we always kind of say that's like the in-house offering. Everyone you know is uh, you have that pre-existing relationship with. You're not doing an email blast. You're not doing a newsletter blast. You're not putting up Facebook ads for the offering. Um, versus 506C, which is really the opposite of that. That's when you start to see, you know, those Facebook ads online, you start to get those email blasts where um, you can advertise the offering publicly, you can raise an unlimited amount of capital, uh, but you have to have only accredited investors and it can be any amount of accredited investors. So Kim, why don't you go ahead and tell us what is an accredited investor and how you can uh, be one? Yeah, so um, a credit investor is there's you know, there used to be eight definitions for uh, accredited investors. I think now we're up to twelve. Um, some of them pertain to individuals, and some of them pertain to other types of entities. Uh, the ones that most of our clients are dealing with on a regular basis are the ones pertaining to the individuals. So. Um, an accredited individual is someone who has over a million dollars net worth, uh, and this would apply to either a, a married couple or a, well, actually a, a spousal equivalent or married couple, okay, okay. Uh, has to have over a million dollars net worth. Um, or the, if the person is single, they have to have over $200,000 in income 
for the last two years with an expectation it will continue indefinitely. Um, if they're a, a spousal equivalent or a married couple, then they have to have over $300,000 income for the past two years with the expectation it will continue indefinitely. So that's accredited. So what's non-accredited, it's everybody else. Right. And, and so what's sophisticated is the other thing, because we talked about that for rule 506B, you have to either be accredited and you don't have to be counted, or you have to be counted if you're not accredited, but you also have to be sophisticated. So um, sophisticated is someone who by themselves or with the assistance of an investment advisor is uh, uh, has the requisite knowledge, experience, and background to be able to understand the merits and risks of the offering uh, and to determine if it's an appropriate investment for their portfolio. So, so that's, that kind of, that's kind of a generic description, right? So it's really a judgment call when it comes down to that sophisticated investor. Well, it's certainly more than somebody with just a job and some savings. Right. right. They right. have to have some level of, uh, you know, background experience, education, yep. uh, have prior investing experience, small business owner, you know, someone, a heavy investor in the stock market, somebody who has done a little bit more, maybe even gone through some uh, multifamily training program. So they understand how syndications work. Right. Um, you know, you can educate your own investors to make them sophisticated through a documented training program. And I like that a lot, what you just said there, you can educate your investors. So you're nurturing the relationship, you're building that trust, and you're also mm -hmm. educating them at the same time. So you're hitting a, you know, a few different birds with one stone. I think that's huge. And Kim, this within the last year or so, there's actually a, a few uh, exceptions to an accredited investor that they added to with um, certain uh, certifications, I believe it is. I know those don't apply to everyone. What are those roughly? Well, there's certain securities licenses that you can get and then qualify by virtue of having that securities license. The problem is it really doesn't help people very much because, you know, if you ask your audience how many of them actually know somebody with a securities license, you might not get anybody to raise their hand. Right. Right. And if those people are actual um, actually active with their license, they could be working with a broker dealer that could prevent them from investing in the type of thing that you're offering. So it's, it's a, a little bit of a, you know, an illusory promise. The good thing about it when they added that definition is that the SEC reserved the right to add additional uh, professional qualifications by rule without having to go through the uh, public review and approval process. They haven't taken any action to do that yet, but perhaps at some point in the future, because there was a big push when that was being added to, uh, you know, why not CPAs? Why not attorneys? Why not, right. you know, other people with advanced degrees? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely understand that. Let's put syndication aside for a moment. Um, there's another misconception out there. A lot of investors will do maybe a, a quick uh, flip or they're doing like the Burr method or something and they're accessing uh, private money from an individual themselves. Is that considered a security? And if so, what should they be doing? Well, so if your business depends on repeatedly borrowing uh, or raising money from private investors, uh, if, if you're, if you're, then you're selling securities. Okay. Then you have to follow securities laws. If you're just borrowing money from uh, people who are holding themselves out to be hard money lenders, 
then don't worry about it. They're the ones that are, you know, have to comply with the law. You're just borrowing money from them. But if you're borrowing from family, friends, uh, people that you meet at your local real estate investment association meetings who are just, you know, ordinary people with some savings or a self-directed IRA or something like that, and your business depends on doing that repeatedly in a 12-month period, then you are selling securities and you should be following securities laws. Okay, understood. Kind of getting back to the syndication model, what does a typical syndication structure look like? I know this can kind of be complex if you're not looking at like an organization chart or a visual um, of what that looks like, but how do you give people a a breakdown of that uh, verbally? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's okay. Now we'll there's that. a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we can we can paint pictures. Um, so usually you're going to have two LLCs, yeah, or or you could use limited partnerships. Uh, limited partnerships are not as popular unless you're bringing in investors from outside of the U.S. Um, the you know in the past you know, 10, 20 years, the uh, lenders are much more familiar. You have gotten much more familiar with limited liability companies. The advantage of an LLC versus a limited partnership is in a limited partnership, the general partner, that's the management, is 100% liable for all acts of that partnership. Whereas in an LLC, you can create a manager-managed LLC and the manager LLC is, is within that LLC. Everyone is protected uh, from liability, from outside liability. Um, so that means that if if you were sued, then they would only be able to go after whatever investment you had in that LLC unless you've broken the law. And um, then uh, they can't pierce that corporate veil and go out and, and attach your other assets, your outside assets. So it gives limited liability to the investors, which they like because, you know, hey, the most they could possibly lose is what they've invested in this deal. And it also gives some limited liability to the management um, so that your outside assets, you know, your personal equity and your personal residence and things like that aren't subject to attachment from the investors. And again, no limited liability applies if you break the law. So if you break the law, they can pierce everything and they can go after anything you own. Um, but if you are not breaking the law and something goes wrong and a deal doesn't work out and maybe people lose money, then um, you're not going to be held uh, responsible for that unless you've done something willfully wrong um, or negligent. Right. So um, the typical structure would have this manager managed LLC. And then you would also have a management uh, level LLC. So that's going to be the, the two to five people that are involved in management that are running this deal. And uh, that's going to be the manager of this investor level entity. Uh, for smaller projects, that entity would take title to the property, become the borrower on the bank loan. And it would have a couple different classes of members, the class A members, the way we structure them, you have class A and class B. Class A are all of your cash paying investors, including members of the management team that contribute cash to their own deals. And so class B- the limited partners, correct? So yes. to speak. Yes, that's correct. And then class B is the part that you've carved out for management. So, so you're usually gonna sell off some of the interests in your LLC to your class A investors in order to raise 100% of the money you need to do the deal. And then you're gonna carve out a portion of those ownership interests for the management team. Those are usually the class B interests. They're subordinate to class A, getting some kind of a, a preferred return or getting the money back. Uh, you know, So there's a possibility that class B never makes any money if you don't make the deal profitable enough. Um, but uh, you know, class A is kind of your priority position. 
and then you've got your class B members. And that's where your profits are split is between class A and class B. The management earns fees. The manager LLC is going to earn fees. And so that could be things like uh, an acquisition fee, um, an asset management fee, um, refinance fee, disposition fee, those kinds of things. Okay, understood. And so let's say, for example, we're doing a very large deal and it's a $10 million raise and DJ and I were on the GP, it's just the two of us and we're a million dollars short and we've got 20 days before closing and we just say, hey, listen, you know, we've really uh, pushed our network and we're unable to raise this other million dollars. Are we able to just bring in another general partner and have them strictly raise a million dollars and then that's it? Or do they have to play a more active role in the, in the company? they would have to play an active role in the company uh, because unless someone has a securities license, you're not allowed to pay them a finder's fee or any amount of compensation that's related to the amount of money that they've raised. And so the rule is that everybody in the management of a syndicate is going to, has the job of raising money. They, and the roles they have in management other than raising money. So you would need to bring that person in. They would be in for the long haul. They're not just a, you know, in, I'm going to raise some money, get paid and get out. They have to stay in. They have to have a job. You have to, you know, allocate some responsibilities to them and they have to be involved uh, for the duration of the deal. So maybe, for example, you can have them come in, they're raising capital, they're taking care of investor relations, and maybe they're taking uh, some roles in the asset management phase of the project and overseeing the investment. Would that be acceptable? Absolutely. For a securities regulator to be you know, querying them and saying, what was your role in management? And they're like, hey, I just raised a million bucks. That's all I did. Right. You know, and I got X. And, you know, so any, you know, what, so typically you're not going to give them uh, even your own employees. You can't give them bonuses or anything like that based on the amount of money that they've raised or yourselves. You can't give yourselves any kind of uh, transaction based compensation. That's what's illegal unless the, the uh, people getting that transaction based compensation have the right securities licenses to have that. Understood. Okay. And what about documentation? So if we have uh, LPs or passive investors coming to our offerings and they're going to invest with us, what kind of documentation would they receive? Does anything have to be reviewed or handed in to us to, to keep track of that? Um, sure. So a typical securities offering. So it kind of goes back to the question of, well, we, we talked about what's a security and that if you, you know, are selling securities, you have to comply with securities laws. So now we're getting to the question of what does that mean to comply with securities laws? So that means that you have to have a, a securities offering. And there's going to be two parts to your securities offering. Uh, I, I kind of liken it to a sandwich, right? You've got your two pieces of bread. So you've got your private placement memorandum, which is the uh, the document that discloses how the deal is structured and all the risks of the investment and that, that discloses that to the your, your investors. Then you have the subscription agreement, which is where the investors uh, certify to you that they've read all the documents you've provided, they've asked all the questions they needed, they've sought whatever legal, financial, or other advice they thought was necessary before they made their decision. And uh, so then they would sign that subscription agreement in order to subscribe to your offering. But in between that, those two pieces of bread, you got to have the meat of the deal. And the meat of the deal is what we were talking about before. That's your legal corporate structure. 
So, you know, what are they investing in? Are they investing in promissory notes? Well, then you're going to give them a promissory note in exchange for their money. That becomes the legally binding contract between you and that investor. Uh, if you're selling interest off in an LLC, then you're going to give them an operating agreement. And that operating agreement is the uh, binding agreement between the investors and the management. And then the manager LLC, we said it was going to be its own LLC. Well, it's going to have a separate operating agreement that describes how decisions are made and uh, how uh, any earnings that the management LLC gets are going to be allocated amongst its members. So when we uh, agreed to become a client, you had some recommendations for really how to be a good client. Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense because certainly part of this process, when we're reviewing uh, the, the quantity of documents that we are, right? And I, I don't say that like it's, I felt like upon review of what you provided, everything was necessary. It was thorough. It was well-written. Uh, in my background, I've had the opportunity, <laughs> the fortunate opportunity of reading <laughs> a lot of legal documents, regulations, laws, and so on. Uh, so really nice job, but to set the expectation for our relationship to work well, what were some of the, the tips that you had for uh, how to work with your firm and, and really, you know, be a good client? Uh, and, and I say that understanding that we need to streamline this process because we can get wrapped around the axle reviewing documents and never get them done, right? Yeah, well, uh, I think there's a there's a lot of questions in there, but, but one is how to be a good client for any attorney. Okay. Not just us, but any attorney. So, you know, you have to make sure that you clearly communicate with the attorney uh, as to what your needs are and that they demonstrate to you that they have a clear understanding of what the needs are. Um, of course, you're going to agree on some kind of a price, whether it's going to be an hourly fee schedule or some kind of a lump sum fee. Um, and so you want to make sure that that price is, is fair and reasonable. Um, but you also need to continue to communicate with your attorney throughout that process. And so, you know, our typical doc document pr production process, uh, you know, when somebody comes on as a client, we'll have a, a one to two hour um, intake call with them, uh, where we go through a, a, a long eight page questionnaire of all the different things that we need to know to be able to draft the appropriate offering documents for you. And, uh, you know, where you're going to talk to us about what you're going to name your companies. And we're going to give you advice about a lot of different things and maybe contrary to what you thought you were going to do. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to, you know, have a discussion with you about uh, how do you, um, you know, how do you want to split money with investors? What kind of fees do you want to earn? And we'll talk to you about what the customary things are. And we'll let you know if you're deviating from the norm such that it's going to become a marketability issue. Because if you're so far off from what the norm is, as far as what are people offering right now, if you have any investors that have ever, ever invested in deals like this before, they're going to note that and they're going to say, wait a minute, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense to me. I'm not going to invest in this deal. Um, so, you know, you've got to kind of work through with your attorney to make sure that you're putting out deal parameters that are within the norm. And, uh, you know, part of that means that you have to work with an attorney that's experienced in this field that sees enough of these things to know what is the norm, you know, because someone who's not experienced or doesn't do securities offerings might just say, yeah, okay, you can go ahead. You can offer, you know, this or that. And, and part of it is not just making sure 
that your, your investors are taken care of, but also making sure you're taken care of. And the reason I say that that's so important is because if the syndicator is not earning money during this process of, of acquiring, owning this property, eventually, you know, unless you're independently wealthy, you're going to have to go out and get another job or go out and do a bunch more deals. And, uh, you know, the ones that aren't making money are going to be kind of the last ones you pick up. And, and do anything with, which is a disservice to the investors uh, because you know, you're not paying as much attention to that deal as you could be if you were being uh, adequately compensated and you could, you could spend the amount of time that that deal needed. Um, you know, even if the deal's not making money, if you're a syndicator, you're gonna have to pay attention to it and you're gonna have to deal with it whether you want to or not, but you're gonna feel a whole lot better about it and you're gonna have a much better attitude and it's gonna be more likely to be successful if you're being adequately compensated along the way. Um, so one of the you know, big mistakes that we see people making is that they come in and they say, well, we're just gonna do uh, you know, a 70-30 split with investors, um, which is okay. That's okay. Okay. But, or, but if they come in and say, well, we're going to do an 8% preferred return to our investors, and then we're going to do a 70, 30 split. Well, just realize what you signed up for. You signed up for 30% of whatever's left over, if anything, after the investors got, uh, an 8% preferred return plus they got 70% of the remaining cash. And so they could end up with 12 or 15% returns when you're getting, you know, pittance or nothing. And uh, so you've got to be extremely careful about that. Um, one of the things that we like to recommend is that uh, you do a class B catch up. So it, it really kind of, it makes the uh, offering equivalent to say a 70, 30 split from day one, because even if you don't get paid your 30% portion because you're giving it to investors to make sure that they hit their preferred returns, then at some point you're giving yourself the right to go back and recapture that. And if you do that, then even if you don't make money for the first two, three years, you know, at some point in the future, whether you, you know, sell or refinance or something like that, you can go back and recapture that money. So you're still thinking, hey, down the road, I'm still going to get this back. It's okay. I, you know, I'm going to be all right. So um, anyway, so there's a lot that you need to do. You need to think about how you're going to structure your deals. This is something that your attorney is going to counsel you about. And then we're going to draft the documents. Once we draft the documents, we're going to send them to you. And, but you have to read them, right? And, and it's a lot. You've got to read them. We've written documents. That usually helps with the review, actually reading the documents. <laughs> yeah. As much as we can, we write in plain English uh, so that uh, people you know, can understand, not just you, but your investors can understand what you're getting into. Right. Because plain English documents, everybody understands they very rarely get challenged. Uh, documents with a whole, whole lot of legals in it, um, you know, it, it's very hard for anybody to interpret that without an attorney. So that ends up in litigation because the minute you get, you know, two, two different sets of attorneys involved, then, you know, they, they tend to escalate things. Yeah. So I feel like you really put things on a T for us. You set the expectations. You've coached us within the boundaries. And I can tell Dante, I think, has a question on that cat, that the class B catch up. I mean, he's just chopping yeah. at the bit. <laughs> so, Kim, I want to touch on this real quick because I found this very interesting. I, you know, we've done a lot of syndication training. Uh, we've had professional real estate training and we're very familiar with. And a lot of networking. Oh, yeah. Huge. Yeah. I mean, it, so we understand how things are supposed to work, how things go on. And something you mentioned in our setup call when we were going over the initial uh, documents or how to create them or to our call, you mentioned the class B catch up and DJ and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, 
not really familiar with that. I remember hearing about it, but we don't really see it practiced a lot. And so, you know, we go get lunch and dinner and network with a lot of investors. And I mean, this week alone, we were with four or five different investors. And, you know, I always syndicators, ask, syndicators, we should say, yes, not just investors. And, you know, I asked the question, I said, okay, guys, like, I see you're doing like a 7% prep for the 70, 30 split. So you guys exercising that class B catch up or that, you know, that GP catch up. And some of them say, no, not really. Some of them say, I don't really know what you're talking about. Or others say, it just depends on the deal. If it's super skinny, no. If it's a good deal and we feel like we can make a little bit money on the back end, yes. So I, I want to touch on this real quick instead of just kind of skipping over. And this is the way I interpret it. And I want you to correct me. So like you said, it's like doing a straight 70-30 split, but anything that that 30% you don't accrue in that year or you don't receive in that year, um, you're catching that back up on the back end. So at sale, for example, instead of just doing the 7% pref on sale and the 730 split, it's a 7% pref, anything that we missed out on that 30% throughout the years. And then that remainder amount goes to the investors or gets split as that 730. Is that correct? Yeah, that's typically how, how we like to write them. And I know that there's a lot of syndicators out there that don't do it that way. So I would argue that maybe they have the wrong attorneys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> well played. But, uh, the reason that we've, we've encouraged this model is that it, uh, we had uh, several clients come to us and say, we will never do a deal with a pref and, a, and just a split again, because the investors made all the money, we made nothing. Mm. And, and sometimes the investors had really great returns and, and they got, you know, the, the syndicators didn't get very much at all. Um, I think it misaligns the interests of the syndicators and the uh, investors. If the syndicators don't get adequately compensated along the way. And um, the reason I say that is because if the only way you're ever going to make any money is to sell the deal, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to sell the deal, right? You're going to want to sell the deal, yeah. right? And, but your investors are making these great returns. They don't want to sell the deal. And you have a fiduciary responsibility to the investors to take their interests ahead of yours. So you're you know, sacrificing yourself for five to seven years while they're making great money, you're making nothing and you don't have a right to recapture that on the end. Uh, it, there is an article on our website uh, at syndicationattorneys.com in the um, library. If you select articles, there's one called Class B Catch-Ups Explained that kind of runs through the scenario of, of what would a deal look like with a, a split, you know, with, without the uh, catch-up. And with the catch-up, it doesn't significantly change the returns to your investors, but it does significantly significantly change what the uh, Class B members get. So we like everybody to be aware of that. If you make a conscious decision that, no, this deal just doesn't, doesn't support that, we can't do it, um, that's fine. Uh, you may only do one or two of those deals before you realize that, uh, yeah, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, we have some clients that are buying, you know, really big deals, um, you know, 30 to $50 million deals. And, uh, they only do the prep in the first year, you know, because they said we've done, you know, we've paid out so much in preps to people on all these deals. And we've got multiple deals. We're just not making any money until we sell. So it, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't help the investors for you not to be adequately compensated. 
And, right. and I know that's contrary to, uh, you know, there's some uh, big crowdfunding companies out there that are pushing people to say, you know, no, you have to pay back all of your investors' money and all of their preferred returns before you get a dime. And I really think that that's just a big disservice to those investors. And yeah, and especially, and- you know, people say, oh, well, you, you get the asset management fee. That is like small potatoes. That's just to keep the lights on. That's not enough to, you know, have a substantial or sufficient income for the partnership. Yeah. It's certainly not representative of the work that's done. Right. No, and, and, and I've also had clients that have become acquisition fee junkies. Okay. Right. <laughs> Where it's like you're chasing the next acquisition fee because that's the only way that you can survive, you know, cause you're not making money off the deals. So it, that, you know, none of that is, is good for your investors and you really need to educate your investors on why it is important that you get adequately compensated uh, and they get fairly compensated. And it's not about, you know, how much of the deal you get and how much of the deal they get. It's, are they getting a reasonable return that's, uh, you know, equal to or comparable what, to what they could get in other investments. And if you can you know, provide that to them, uh, you know, pro- probably most real estate deals were, are going to allow you to give returns better than what they could be making in other traditional investments. And if you're able to provide that, then uh, they should be satisfied with that if you demonstrate it adequately from the beginning. Yeah, I like that. That's great. Um, did you have, DJ, do you have anything else before we head over to our next section of the show? Well, I mean, we could turn this into a four-hour show pretty oh, easily. Yeah. <laughs> we can start talking about waterfalls. We could touch on the catch-up more, you know, the prefs, the fees, all that good stuff. But Kim, I think you've done a, a great job thus far, hence why we hired you. Uh, but we're going to switch over to our section of the show called the Curious Cues. So it's questions we throw at each guest. They come on the show and uh, we'll go right ahead. Uh-oh. <laughs> so first question is uh favorite podcast you enjoy listening to if you listen to any podcast um i like startup therapy um so it's it's for startups not necessarily real estate startups some of them may be adequate uh, or may may be applicable to uh real estate but uh but i do like that one awesome and besides your own favorite book you enjoy reading um i where's my book i think i have it on my shelf somewhere I think I know which one you're going to pull possibly. Yep. I was right. Sam Freshman, Principles of Real Estate Syndication. This is a book that I read when I was first starting out as a securities attorney. It's a great book. Sam's a great guy. Um, we've done a couple podcasts with him. Uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge. So listen to those podcasts if, uh, if you're interested in hearing from Sam. Awesome. We'll have to check out that book too, because I know you recommended it last time we were on a call. And mm-hmm. biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? Um, the project that we had, it was 27 units. This was a, an apartment complex in Columbus, Ohio, and we bought it at the wrong time of the market. We ended up closing on them, I think, in 2010. And um, our intention at the time, well, we lived in Southern, my husband and I lived in Southern California. Uh, our intention was to buy um, three properties that would have been in over 100 units in Columbus at that time. So we had three of them under contract. But because of the meltdown that happened that year, we were only able to close on one of them. So we ended up with this orphan 27 unit apartment complex in Columbus. And it wasn't a full-time job for a property manager. So if you hired a property management company, they just treat you like another single client. They weren't, it really needed about a third of somebody's time devoted to it all the time. And nobody couldn't. uh, support a full-time staff or on-site management, all that fun stuff because of the unit size. 
Exactly. And uh, so we would hire a property manager and without fail, we had to hire, we had to fire them every two years. So they would come on guns and yeah, we're going to fill all these vacants and we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then they'd realize, oh gosh, this takes a third of someone's time. We haven't devoted enough staff to that. And uh, so they would uh, start to drop off or they start charging too much for turns and uh, the vacancies would creep up. And, uh, you know, so every two years we had to fire uh, the property manager and start over. So you know, the, the rule of thumb right now is 80 units can support a full-time uh, maintenance person, a full-time property manager. And so if you can hire your own staff or have the ability to, if these other professional companies aren't doing their job, you're going to be in a much better position. So especially if those properties are far from where you live. So if you're buying outside, you know, two, that's more than two or three hours from where you live, then you need to uh, try to hit that 80 unit mark. Don't just go buy orphan properties and uh, small units in, in other uh, communities because it's going to be a challenge. That's quite a hurdle, I'd have to say. That was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so favorite non-real estate related hobby. So in your free time, what do you enjoy doing? Um, I enjoy boating. You know, I, I live on a lake and, uh, you know, we, we have a pontoon. We like to, and, and I have a dog. So I walk the dog a lot. There you go. I like it. And newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the world of syndications? Um, read my book. Uh, you know, go get some training and the book actually lays out what you need to do. And then it starts with go get some training on the kind of asset class you want to buy. Right. Uh, it's not like you plug for yourself. You talk about, you know, A to Z of what really what you should be doing even outside of some securities. That's right. It, it really kind of step by step what, you know, mindset and, and then what you should be doing first. And then, you know, beyond that, how then would you structure a deal that you were going to invite investors to? Yeah, I yeah, love it's it. certainly one of our foundational pieces for mm-hmm. when we got started. We we actually read it way back when we decided to partner up. So, uh, and anybody that we bring on board, it'll be required reading. There you go. I like it. Hey, Kim, this has been awesome. We really appreciate your time. If you don't mind just uh, plugging in, if someone wants to ask you some questions or get a hold of you, how can they do so? So uh, the best way to reach us is to go to our website at syndicationattorneys.com. You can also check out our affiliate website at uh, investormarketingmaterials.com. So we have both a legal team and we have uh, professional writers and graphic design team that can help you create uh, professional marketing materials for you to create that database of prospective investors. Um, At the website, do check out the library because we have frequently asked questions. We have, uh, I think, almost 50 of our uh, previously recorded podcasts. Um, Do sign up for um, our podcast, which is Raise Private Money Legally for Real Estate. Um, so that, that's, uh, you know, that's a great place for you to learn or go check out the podcast at the website, but, um, and you can also get a, a, a free digital copy of the book at the website. So if you go to syndicationattorneys.com, click the tab that says, get the book, um, then you'll be able to download a copy of that for free. Awesome. Well, we really enjoyed having you on. Great Thank stuff. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.